We're pausing our series in 2 Samuel this morning so that we can look at this important and instructive psalm of confession, Psalm 51. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, then you're familiar with the circumstances that prompted David to write this psalm. If you haven't been with us, then the psalm title gives you a brief but thorough reminder. Look there in your Bibles at the text that's in all capital letters just above verse 1. That's the psalm title, part of the inspired text, and it gives us the setting for Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So, we know that this psalm comes out of the darkest season in David's life. His sin with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11 gave us the details and they were not encouraging. Adultery, covetousness, deception, murder. All of that David had done and he had done it willingly. But mercifully, the Lord did not give David over to his sin. 2 Samuel 12 described God's mercy and it was abundant. God pursued David with His Word, spoken through Nathan the prophet. And that Word worked repentance in David's heart. That Word from God turned David from his sin. You might remember that moment considering how powerful it was. Nathan the prophet came to David and said to him, You are the man. And David responded with humble confession, I have sinned against the Lord. And that, friends, is where we get this psalm. Out of the deepest darkness of David's life comes this heartfelt prayer of confession. Out of the deepest darkness in David's life comes this equally deep moving display of repentance. You know, we don't think about repentance very often. And when we do, we tend to think about it wrongly. Some people assume repentance is a one-time thing. Something you only do at the beginning of the Christian life. I did that once, I don't have to do it anymore. Still other people are misled and think repentance is a work that we have to do in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. But friends, both of those common perspectives are contrary to what the Bible teaches. According to the Scriptures, repentance is not a one-time thing, but the ongoing pursuit for a Christian. A growing Christian is a repenting Christian. And far from being a work that we do, repentance is a gift that God grants by His grace. You see, repentance is essential to living the Christian life. Repentance is part of the good news proclaimed to us in the Gospel. And that's why we're pausing our study in 2 Samuel in order to consider this Psalm, because of all the passages in the Bible, Psalm 51 shows us in great detail what it looks like to repent before God. Psalm 51 shows us what it looks like to do this thing that is essential to being a Christian. To repent of your sin. All of God's Word is profitable to us. But Psalm 51 has a unique ability to instruct us on what it means to turn from our sin and begin again, to begin afresh to follow after the Lord by faith. And I pray that's what God is going to do among us today. I pray that this insider's look, so to speak, at David's repentant heart would encourage and equip us 
to continue to pursue repentance as well. Repentance is not an afterthought to being a Christian, friends. Far from it. Repentance is essential to being a Christian. And therefore, we should give our attention to this instructive psalm. So let's do that now. Please follow along with me as we read from this wonderful psalm of confession, Psalm 51. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise. For You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise. Do good to Zion in Your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me now as we ask God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before You today asking You that You would do what You have promised. That You would reveal Yourself in the Scriptures, as You have said that You have done, that You would show us, Father, what You are like in Your character. That You would show us, Father, both Your holiness and Your grace. Both Your complete righteousness and Your mercy to sinners like us. God, we come before You with nothing to to claim in Your presence. We have nothing to offer You. But we come, Father, standing upon the grace that You have provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask now that You would help us to hear from Your Word and to believe what You have spoken and then to live, Father, by faith in obedience to what You have revealed to be true. Lord, please give me grace to speak things that are true and to keep me from error. Please grant Your people the discernment that we need to be rooted in the truth and growing in the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, confident that You hear us. Amen. Well, friends, this is a rich psalm, as you just heard from the reading. So our study this morning will not exhaust all that could be said from Psalm 
51. Instead, our focus is going to be rather narrow. I simply want us to note the marks of true repentance as exhibited in David's life. There are four in particular that should get our attention. The first comes in verses 1 and 2. True repentance relies entirely on the mercy of God. True repentance relies entirely on the mercy of God. Here at the outset, I want us to understand that the most important feature of repentance is God's mercy. Most Christians avoid talking about repentance because it makes them uncomfortable. Or perhaps it even frightens them. We have this image of an angry God hovering over us with threats. And if we don't pacify Him with some form of repentance, then He's going to unleash fury on us. But that's not at all what we see of repentance here in Psalm 51. Far from being motivated by terror, David is motivated by God's mercy. You can see this very clearly in the text. You'll notice that David's first words are anchored in the mercy of God. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. David knows he has no claim on God at this point. He cannot offer God anything in exchange for forgiveness. This isn't a a negotiation between David and God. This is a wholehearted plea for something David knows he doesn't deserve. He begs God for mercy. And David's hope is that God's mercy will wipe out his sin. Notice the last line of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. That verb, blot out, carries the idea of annihilating something. Of wiping it off the face of the planet. It's used throughout the Old Testament. And generally speaking, it's only God who has the power to do such a thing. Think of it like God's power to create, but in reverse. So God's power to uncreate. To obliterate something. That's what David begs the merciful God to do. To blot out, wipe out, undo his transgressions. Now how can David ask for such a thing? Sin is a horrible reality that deserves God's judgment. So how can a sinner like David ask for such powerful mercy to wipe out his transgressions? Well, notice the middle of verse 1. What stands at the center of David's request? The character and covenant love of God. Look there again. Have mercy on me, O God. Why? According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Friends, do you see how God's mercy is at the heart of David's repentance? It's actually a masterful presentation from David. Verse 1 has four lines, you'll notice. The first line and the fourth line are the same. They are requests for forgiveness. But the second and the third lines, the ones in the middle, what do they do? They tie David's requests to who God is. You see, David's requests are anchored in the mercy of God. This is David's way of saying, I know, Lord, that only Your mercy enables me to come to You. So in light of Your character, I ask You to do who You are. Do who you are, God. You are merciful. So I beg you for mercy. Even at the outset, David's repentance is anchored in the mercy of God. That same theme continues in verse 2 as David recognizes his forgiveness is accomplished by God's mercy. Not only is it anchored in God's mercy, it's accomplished by God's mercy. 
Notice the two requests in verse 2. David asks for God to wash him and cleanse him. Those verbs, wash and cleanse, are used frequently in the law of Moses as commands given to sinful Israelites. In fact, they're used 138 times in the Old Testament and 69 of the references are in the law. Fully half of the references are in the law of Moses. And they're always given as commands to sinful Israelites. So an Israelite with leprosy who had to wash himself in order to be clean. An Israelite woman who had mildew in her house had to cleanse her house in order to be clean. Most often these verbs are given as commands that unclean sinners had to meet on their own. Notice how David uses them in verse 2. He doesn't talk of washing or cleansing himself. No, David asks for God to do this. He pleads for God to wash him. For God to cleanse him. Friends, do you see what David is teaching here? David understands that the law cannot make him clean. David understands that he cannot purify himself. So what does David do? He asks for God to do for him what David cannot do for himself. That's mercy. That's mercy. True repentance understands that a sinner's only hope is for the mercy of God to accomplish what I cannot accomplish on my own. Friends, what this means is that right now, the living God has already made every provision for your repentance. He has revealed Himself to be merciful, thereby calling you to cast yourself on who He is. And He has revealed the power of His mercy. So powerful, in fact, that it can undo. It can wipe out all the wrongs we have done. Friends, your sin cannot stand against such a merciful God. He's made every provision for you to turn to Him once more. So if there's something you've tried to keep hidden, bring it into the light. That's that's where the mercy is. And there's mercy with our God. The darkness consumes us. The light brings us into God's mercy. He's already made the provision. Bring it into the light. And experience God's mercy. This is the first mark of true repentance. It relies entirely on the mercy of God. So won't you turn to Him today and receive what He has already provided for the good of your soul? The second mark of true repentance comes in verses 3-6. to True repentance requires full and honest confession. True repentance requires full and honest confession. In verse 3, David shifts from pleading for mercy to confessing his sin. This is why David so desperately needs the mercy of God. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Friends, please note the personal language in verse 3. My transgressions, my sin, David says. You see, David is not content with generalities or vague statements. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, I've made some mistakes. I I slipped up here or there. No, David owns his sin. My sin is ever before me, confronting me, David says. And in response, David does what true repentance requires. He makes a full and honest confession. Again, you can see how David's confession works itself out in the passage. Follow it with me. 
First of all, David confesses his rebellion against God. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understands what we often overlook, that all sin is fundamentally against God. Now that might sound rather cold-hearted, considering how David has deeply wronged other human beings, Uriah and Bathsheba to be specific. But David is not denying that he has wronged other people. Rather, David is saying those deeds were wrong because Uriah and Bathsheba were made in the image of God. That's why it's wrong. You see, sin is much worse than we tend to think. Not only has David despised God's Word, but he's also defiled those made in God's image. By sinning against other people, David has sinned against God who created the people. All sin is fundamentally against God. And that makes sin not simply a series of missteps or bad decisions. That makes sin active rebellion against the Creator. Friends, in order for repentance to be true, we have to own up to the reality that we have committed treason against God. No blame shifting. No rationalization. No excuses. None of that. Confession has to acknowledge this truth, that all sin is against God, that my sin is against God, and therefore, I'm a rebel against Him. David confesses his rebellion. David also confesses his corrupt nature. Notice verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David is not saying anything about the way he was conceived. Rather, David is describing his own nature, which is totally depraved. You see, sin is not merely something David does. A sinner is who he is by nature. As a descendant of Adam, David has inherited a sinful nature that corrupts every aspect of his being. David is not as bad as he could be, but there's no part of him that's not corrupt. In other words, David's problem, catch this, David's problem is not limited to what he did with Bathsheba. David's problem is deeply rooted at the core of his being. It's not enough for David to change his behavior. It's not enough for David to learn better habits. David needs to be transformed. David needs to be changed at the level of the heart. He confesses his corrupt nature. Finally, David confesses his failure to meet God's standards. Verse 6 forms a striking contrast with David's confession in verse 5. You see how they both begin with the same word? It's a contrast. Notice what David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What is David like at the heart level? Well, he's sinful by nature, with even his desires opposed to God. But what does God desire at the heart level? Truth and wisdom that leads to godliness. Do you see David's point? He confesses in verse 6 just how short he has fallen of what God expects. Again, please don't miss this, friends. This is the key for true repentance. David does not evade his sin with clever explanations. He doesn't minimizing it, minimize it by calling it a moment of weakness. He doesn't justify it by saying that he's better off than some other sinners he knows. 
No, from his actions to his nature to the desires of his heart, David makes a full and honest confession. He owns what he has done. Friends, is this true of your confession of sin? Do you make it your aim to fully and honestly acknowledge what you have done? If you're like me, then you probably know well that temptation to cast yourself in the best possible light when it comes to confessing your sin. Sure, I technically sinned, but if you knew the kind of week that I had, then you would understand. If you knew what so-and-so did to me, then you would see that they deserved it. We all know that temptation, don't we? I I do. I hope you do, or else I'm feeling even worse about myself. And that's why we need to take David's example to heart. Confession with a caveat is not a true confession. And therefore, isn't true repentance. Until we fully and honestly acknowledge what we have done and taken responsibility before God, until we've done that, we have not yet started on the road to repentance. True repentance requires a full and honest confession. That's mark number two. The third mark comes in verses 7 to 12. True repentance pursues inward transformation. True repentance pursues inward transformation. David's confession prompts him again to seek God's mercy and forgiveness. He's never far from the mercy of God in Psalm 51. Notice how verses 7 through 9 repeat basically the same themes of verses 1 and 2. David asks for God to cleanse him, verse 7, and to blot out his iniquities, verse 9. It's the same emphasis that began the psalm. He's never far from the mercy of God. The law cannot cleanse David, and therefore David's only hope is God's mercy. But you'll also notice here that these familiar requests come with a new confidence. You see it there in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Friends, do you hear the confidence in David's plea? David has done awful things. Adultery, deception, murder. Those are awful things. Those are dirty things that are wretched in God's sight. And yet, God's mercy reaches even to the depths of David's sin. When God acts, David is not only forgiven, he is made whiter than snow. What an astounding thought that a totally depraved sinner would be made totally pure by the mercy of God. Friends, before we go on, I do just want to pause here and remind you that no sin is beyond the power of God's mercy to cleanse and to forgive. This same mercy that cleansed David is at work today when we repent and confess and turn to God. You may have done despicable, wretched things in your life. I have. You may have done things that still to this day keep you up in the middle of the night. I have. But the promise of the Gospel is that God's mercy covers even the darkest of sins. And not only does God cover those sins, He restores the sinner. He makes us whiter than snow in His sight. It seems that David made this phrase up. Because it's so so unthinkable in his mind. He's looking for a way to describe what God has done. Whiter than snow. And therefore, you can come to Him with complete confidence 
knowing that God's mercy reaches even to the depths of the darkest sin of the human heart. You may have done despicable things, and God says there's mercy for you if you'll repent and believe. And amazingly, the good news of God's mercy doesn't stop with restoration. That's what we see here in Psalm 51. After pleading with God for restoration, David goes on to ask God for transformation. Notice verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, I don't think I've prayed any verse from the Bible more than that verse. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. The word create is used only of God in the Old Testament. And it describes God's power to bring something out of nothing. And that's what God has to do to save a sinner. He's got to bring something out of nothing. You see, this is the answer to David's sinful heart. He pleads for God to create in him what he lacks. A clean heart, a pure heart that is steadfast in obedience. So the good news of God's mercy keeps going. Not only does the Lord forgive us, He also changes us. David then expands on this in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now that sounds a little bit like verse 10, but there's a different nuance here that is important. The word willing carries the idea of being eager or delighted to do something. And if you think about it, this is precisely what David lacked on the rooftop when he saw Bathsheba. At that moment, the only thing that looked delightful to David was sin. Remember, he saw, he wanted, so he took. But now, in view of God's mercy, what does David ask for? An eager spirit that delights in doing the will of God. His commandments are not burdensome. David asks for a heart that delights to do God's will. Please don't miss this, friends. David recognizes that he needs more than outward changes in behavior. He needs more than better habits. Those things are good, but they are not sufficient. David needs new desires. He needs to be transformed so that his heart delights in pleasing God so that the next time he's on the rooftop and he sees something he shouldn't, he says, I don't even want to go there because God is better. And that's what I hope we take away from this section of the psalm. When it comes to repentance, we certainly need to turn from sinful actions. We certainly need to break with old habits that lead us into sin. Those kinds of changes are good. Please hear me say that. Those kinds of changes are good changes. But they're not sufficient. At the end of the day, true repentance should lead us to pursue not only outward reformation, but also inward transformation. Now, even as I say that, I'm sure someone in here is thinking, But how does that happen? How does God change my desires? That sounds almost too mystical to be of any practical help. How does this even happen? Well, actually, friends, it's not mystical at all. It might surprise us, but God's tools of transformation are nothing less than the normal means of grace that He's given to every single Christian. 
reading the Bible, gathering with the church for worship, fellowship with other believers, faithfulness in prayer. It's through those regular, everyday practices that God carries out this inward transformation of the heart. That's how it happens. Through the means of grace He's given to every single Christian. You see, our problem is we want quick results that we can see right now. But that's not how God works most often. Spiritual growth cannot be microwaved. And transformation cannot be maximized for efficiency. If we want to pursue inward transformation, then we need to have more of a farmer's mindset. We need to be working, for, working today for a harvest that comes later. We need the farmer's mindset. And that mindset takes faith. The farmer can't see the crops growing day by day, but he does the work every day because he trusts that's how the crops are going to grow. Well, it's the same thing with being a Christian. I can't see transformation day by day, but I pursue it each day by faith because I trust that is how God is working. So again, friends, I hope this is our takeaway from this section of verses. True repentance calls us to pursue inward transformation. And the way that happens is through the tried and tested means God has used down through the ages. Not something mystical, just something really, really regular. Read His Word. Gather with His people. Fellowship with the saints. Go to Him in prayer. Do it today. Do it tomorrow. And then do it every day until you die or until the Lord Jesus comes back. That's how God changes His people. And in the midst of it, you're not going to tell that anything is happening. I have had zero days in my life when I've thought, man, I'm changing right now. It just not, doesn't work that way. But over the long haul, God is working. That's what repentance requires. We do the things God has called us to do day by day by faith because that's how He changes our hearts. That's how He does verse 10. Created me a clean heart. So we read and we gather and we fellowship and we pray and God works. That's number three. That brings us to the fourth and final mark. Verses 13 to 19. True repentance leads to renewed worship. True repentance leads to renewed worship. There's a lot we could consider from these verses, but what I want us to see is simply David's renewed focus on worshiping the Lord. It shows up in a number of ways, but note just two examples with me. The first is verse 13 where David is renewed in his desire to proclaim the truth. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Who better to teach wayward sinners about repentance than a wayward sinner who has been forgiven? Isn't this the wonderful kindness of God, friends? The Lord wastes nothing in the lives of His saints. He wastes nothing. Even our sinful failures, when covered by God's redeeming love, become tools in God's hand to extend that same mercy to other sinners. Don't sell God short, friends. Don't sell God short. There is something uniquely powerful about a forgiven sinner declaring the truth that God forgives sinners. And so we shouldn't sell God short on what He wants to do. That's what David is learning here in verse 13. He's renewed in his desire to proclaim the truth. The second example is verses 16 and 17. David is renewed in his desire to worship according to the truth. Look at verses 16 and 17. David says, God will not delight in sacrifices, 
or else David would give them. But I thought God commanded sacrifices. Isn't there a whole book of the Bible about how to do right sacrifices? Why doesn't David give what God commands? Because repentance was never about simply going through the motions of religious ritual. You could offer 10,000 sacrifices and not have a lick of repentance in your heart. And that's David's point, verse 17. The sacrifices of God, so the ones that He wants, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't want ritual, friends. He wants heartfelt repentance. He wants His people to be truly broken and humbled before Him. That's what it means to be contrite. It means you're humbled before God. You recognize that you have no claim on His mercy and that He would have every right to judge you for your sin. It's that kind of heart, a broken and contrite heart that pleases the Lord. And understand, friends, that's good news because that's all we can bring. I can't give Him anything else except brokenness. And that's what He wants because that's how He's glorified. That's how He's seen as merciful when He meets broken and contrite sinners and restores them and changes them and then uses them to proclaim His glory. It's good news in verse 17. That's what David is teaching here in Psalm 51. By God's mercy, David's repentance has led him deeper in renewed worship of God. In fact, notice how the psalm ends. Verses 18 and 19. I was confused by these verses for a really long time. David prays for God to protect Jerusalem. It's been an int- this is an intense personal psalm. And then all of a sudden, he's praying for Jerusalem at the end. Why is he praying for Jerusalem? Well, the request is not actually about the physical city. It's about the people who live there. And God's name that dwells there. You see, David's turnaround is now complete. That's what verses 18 and 19 are saying. David's repentance is now had its full effect. His turnaround is complete. Think about it, friends. Back in 2 Samuel 11, what started David's downfall? Well, he neglected his responsibility as the king and he thought only about himself. But what's he doing now in verses 18 and 19? He's fulfilling his responsibility as a king, which is to protect his people and to protect the city of God. You see, he's restored. The turnaround is complete. The king's heart is where it should be to care for his people and to lead them once more in true worship. This is always the effect of repentance, brothers and sisters. It not only does good to our souls, but it leads us to do good in the lives of others as well. It leads us to meet our responsibilities as church members, as husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, employees, neighbors, Repentance restores us in every sense, both to love God and to love neighbor as ourself. Friends, overall, I hope you hear again how good repentance can be in the life of a believer. I take it in these verses that David's worship of God has a deeper and more heartfelt component than it did before. He seems to have learned something about who God is that he would not have learned otherwise. Far from being something to avoid, repentance has been the pathway for David to enjoy in a fresh way the worship and the presence of God. Has it been hard? Yes, of course. But what is the end result? Life. David finds life. Friends, that is a wonderful gift. And it has come to David through repentance. 
So the next time you're faced with the need to repent, perhaps you'll hear these words from Psalm 51, and you'll remember that however hard it might be in the short run, the end result is life. The end result is renewed and heartfelt worship that brings joy in the presence of God. True repentance leads to renewed worship. Well, as we close, I'd like to consider just just one final thought as we go. Psalm 51 is King David's prayer of confession. And it's evidence of why David is called the man after God's own heart. Why is David a man after God's own heart, considering how sinful he has been? Why is he a man after God's own heart? Not because he's perfect, but because by God's grace he was repentant before the Lord and trusted only in God's mercy to save him. That's why David is the exemplary king of Old Testament Israel. Not because he's perfect, but because he's repenting and believing. But can you imagine how good it would be to live under a king who has never fallen into sin? Can you imagine a king who has no need to offer confession of his own, but instead mercifully prays on behalf of his people, even when they cannot pray for himself themselves? That would be a magnificent kingdom, wouldn't it? He would be a glorious king, wouldn't he? A king with no sin. A king who never had to be restored because he never fell. Brothers and sisters, that kind of king is the great hope of the church. And it's a hope that has become reality in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right now, the Lord Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, praying Psalm 51. But He's not praying it for Himself. He's praying it for us and for our salvation. So by all means, I pray we've been encouraged this morning to pursue true repentance. I pray we've been equipped to pursue true repentance. But most of all, most of all, I pray we leave today knowing that our hope lies not in our repentance, but in the King who never fell. In the King who never needed to repent. The King who will come again one day soon to bring His people into His righteous, eternal kingdom. That's the hope of the church, friends. And so we pray, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.